0: If you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, we are going to continue in our series through the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 22, verses 7 through 23. Luke chapter 22, verses 7 through 23. And when you get there, say hallelujah. If you don't have it, your Bible's with you. Uh, they will be behind me on the screen in my translation, which is the ESV. Luke chapters 22, verses 7-23. through 23. And this is what the Lord tells us through Luke. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. The hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. This is the word of the Lord. And So if you've gone to the movies recently, I don't know how many of you are big movie goers, but it feels like you've traveled back in time, right? You go and you check the show times, you look at the little sign outside the theater, and you see... That there are movies like Indiana Jones, Top Gun, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. They're all playing in theaters. It's like you've traveled back to the 80s. You turn on your TVs and there's reboots of shows like Night Court and Star Trek. The New York Times reports that old tech, right, such as PCs and Ataris are selling at a high rate. So the chances that you walk into a friend's house and you see them playing Space Invaders or Pac-Man is incredibly high. And so it begs the question, why this increased interest in things from the past? Why is, in, why is Harrison Ford playing Indiana Jones at like 90 years old? And he's way too old to be doing that. There, because items or objects from the past are making a comeback because there is power in remembering. So whether it's seeing Harrison Ford wearing the hat or whether it's hearing the familiar sounds of Pac-Man eating those little gold things, whatever they are. When we hear these familiar sounds or we see these familiar sights, we are in a sense transported to the past. People crave these relics because in them they are transported to a time that maybe they perceived to have been simpler, a time that was more innocent. This is why many of us have listened to these same music since high school or college. Teenagers and kids, this is why when you get in your parents' car, they're listening to stuff from the 80s. There is power in remembering. And the Old Testament constantly calls the people of God to remember, because whether through the passing of time or willful forgetting, we as mankind, as humans, are a forgetful sort. Old Testament Israel was called to remember who the Lord is and what the Lord has done. And one of the means of remembrance was the annual celebration of the Passover. Passover was the time when the Israelites remembered how the Lord delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And every element of the Passover meal was intended to point back to that time when they were delivered. And so it is this meal of remembrance, this time of remembrance, that Jesus and His disciples are preparing in verse 7. And as we dive into these verses, we must recognize there is something incredibly moving about this moment. You see, Jesus, knowing that the cross awaits, and knowing that these very disciples he is about to eat with will abandon him at his greatest hour of need. Knowing all this, he steps into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, to eat one last time with his disciples before his agony begins. It's it's almost discomforting the mood that these verses give us as Judas and the enemies of Christ are setting their plans in motion as painful death awaits the Son of God. He is found to be calmly preparing a meal. I mean, how many of us, if we knew someone was out to kill us, would sit down and fire up a steak dinner, right? How many of us would eat and order some Papa John's and just sit there and wait? If we found out someone was coming to kill us, we would pack our things in a hurry and head off down the road. There would be no lollygagging and there would be no waiting. And yet here is Jesus calmly knowing what's being put in motion knowing what's about to happen, calmly getting ready to eat the Passover meal with his disciples. And so in these verses, we're going to see three things that speak about Christ and his relationship to the Passover. And so point number one, Jesus is faithful to the Passover. Number one, Jesus is faithful to the Passover. You'll notice that as Luke is building the tension in this narrative, right? We looked at last week how Once chapter 22 begins, Luke kind of sets the stage. He's setting the context for what is about to happen. He's using time markers to do it. So if you look at chapter 22, verse 1, it says, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near. And now in verse 7 of chapter 22, it says, The Day of Unleavened Bread has come. And so these time markers are telling us that something important is happening. Did y'all ever watch the show... Back in the day, 24 with Jack Bauer. Y'all watch that show? So if you watch 24, you remember that one of the ways it built like intensity and anticipation was it would show what time of day it was during the show. And it had this really obnoxious, high-pitched sounding beep. And the more and louder it got, the more you know something intense was about to happen. If you watched the show, when the time marker came on, you couldn't help but feel the anticipation of what was going to happen next. That's kind of what Luke is doing here. One can't help but read chapter 22 with all these time markers that Luke is using and feel as if something world-changing is about to happen. And while the disciples at the time may not have realized it, right? we, see, we will see the disciples don't necessarily understand what's going on. Jesus certainly did. So he sends two of his disciples, whom we know to be Peter and John, and he sends them to prepare the Passover. And he gives them incredibly detailed instructions, such as a man carrying a jar of water. Now, if we're reading that verse in our rooms by ourselves during our quiet time, we would probably read that and keep going. That's not a very important detail. But back in the time of Jesus, it was incredibly unique and rare to see a man carrying a jar of water. Typically, that was a job reserved for women. And so there are debates among scholars if this is an example of Jesus being omniscient of him showing how he is all-knowing, or if he had prearranged this meeting with this man so that Judas would not know beforehand where they were having the Passover. But either way, the reader knows by reading these verses that Jesus is in far more control of this very moment than the disciples realize. Just like we looked at last week, Jesus is not a passive participant in the passion narrative. He is not being tossed back and forth like a pinball in a pinball machine. The scribes are plotting, and Judas is betraying, but Jesus is in ultimate control. And this is all but confirmed, because the disciples, they go into the city, and what do they find but a man carrying a jar of water? And he leads them right to a room that is perfectly furnished to celebrate the Passover. Not one detail was lacking, and nothing was overlooked. And so these verses not only show us that Jesus is in control of the situation, but they remind us of Jesus' faithfulness in keeping the law of God. Because it was expected of faithful, law-keeping Jewish people that they observe the Passover. And so Jesus, fulfilling the law, prepares to observe the Passover, even with his death on the horizon. There was no suffering, there was no distress. That would have caused him to be hindered in his admission and in his faithfulness to the Father. And so dear saints, see in these verses, in verses 7-13, through 13, encouragement. Because some of you may feel as if you yourself are on the cusp of something terrible. Some of you may be awaiting results from a doctor. Others may be facing relational conflict. There may be situations in the life Of your children and you have no idea how they're going to pan out but see in verses 7 through 13 that Christ unlike us knew exactly what was coming in the very near future he knew what awaited him in the city that it would be arrest betrayal mocking crowds being spit on and ultimately death and yet he did not waver and he did not cower but was faithful to the very end And so we, as His people, can step forward into our tomorrows that are full of the unknown because Christ stepped out knowing exactly what awaited Him. And what awaited Him was the bearing of God's wrath for sinners. He pressed on, knowing He would be facing and taking the judgment of God for sins that He did not commit. And He did it faithfully. There's the old Gaither hymn. Y'all know Bill Gaither? Uh, Because He lives... The song says, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. And these verses in Luke show us that not only can we face our tomorrows because he lives, but because he faced his tomorrows, knowing exactly what awaited him and continued in faithfulness, we can do the same thing. We can step forward and get out of bed because we know that Christ has stepped forward in faithfulness to bear the wrath of God for us, that we may have life that we may experience the saving love of God in our lives. And yet Jesus is not only faithful to the Passover. As the night unfolds and as the text continues, we see our second point, that Jesus transforms the Passover. So number one, He's faithful. Number two, He transforms the Passover. And so down in verse 14, you'll see another timestamp, another time marker. So not only has the day arrived, But in verse 14, and when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And so again, we're getting closer and closer to something big happening. And so as they begin the meal, we see that Jesus is fully aware that this is the last time he will eat with them. He knows that this is the last time he will eat with his disciples until the Passover is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And so already in these verses, in verses 14 through 20, we see Jesus tweaking how the disciples were to view this meal. He's going to change the way the disciples would interpret this meal that had been celebrated for thousands of years to remember the exodus from Egypt. He's going to change it right before their eyes. So there are three sub-points to how he transforms the Passover. And if you've been through our Membership Matters class, some of these will sound familiar so first, Jesus transforms the meal by causing his disciples to look ahead. He transforms the meals by causing them to look ahead. In verses 16 and 18, he tells you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Verse 18, for I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He is adding a forward-looking dimension to the Passover. For centuries, for hundreds and thousands of years, the Passover meal was a time to look back. It was a time when those celebrating remembered their exodus, their late night escape from Egyptian slavery. It was a time of remembrance. And it wasn't until around the 11th century, long after Jesus had ascended into heaven, that Jewish people began adding an element to their Passover observation that symbolized their future hope of the Messiah. And so there was no sense in looking forward to the future during the time that our passage takes place. So the Passover for them was kind of like the 4th of July for us, right? So granted, not many of us walk around on the 4th of July just constantly thinking about the 2nd Continental Congress and George Washington and the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Typically, we're just thinking on the 4th about hot dogs and shooting explosives off into the sky, yeah. Uh, Well, either fireworks or guns, depending on where you live. And so, if we think about the significance of the 4th of July at all, right, it's whether we're reading an article or maybe we're listening to Hamilton for the 100th time, all of our thinking of the 4th of July is always remembering. We're always remembering the past and what happened in the past. Not many of us are looking forward to the 4th of July 10 years from now. And so this is what the Passover was for them, a time of remembrance and looking back. And yet here Jesus is adding a futuristic element to the meal. Now, instead of just looking back, the disciples of Christ will look back and forward. So we're all taught as young children to look both ways before crossing the street. We're taught this as we get our driver's licenses to look both ways before crossing the intersection. With these words of Christ... I will not eat it or drink it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Christ is putting a look both ways sign at this meal. Because now for the disciples of Christ, they will not only look back to a past deliverance, but they will look forward to a future fulfillment. So not only will they look back to a past deliverance, they will look forward to a future fulfillment. And this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, that as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And so right there in that one verse in 1 Corinthians is the looking back when he says proclaiming the Lord's death and the looking forward until He comes. As followers of Christ partake of this meal that Jesus is inaugurating on the night that He is betrayed, we begin to look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb that is described in Revelation 19. So every time we today, modern Christians, partake of this meal, the Lord's Supper, the very meal that He began on that night before He went to the cross, we do it, we partake of this meal looking forward to the ultimate communion. We partake with thankfulness for God's faithfulness in the past and with an eye towards His return in the future, towards the future when all things will be made well, when all things will be made perfect. And so to partake in the Lord's Supper is to proclaim and look forward to that day, to that future day when all the cares and fears of this world will pass away in the shining light of the glory of Christ. When all things will be made well, and as we like to say around here, when all sad things will come untrue. Jesus is making this meal a time to feast upon the truth that one day all suffering all sorrow will cease when we see our Savior face to face. During our Youths con event that we did earlier in January, David Platt told the story of his and his wife's adoption process. And Platt tells the story that in January of 2020, he and his wife had been matched with a three-year-old boy uh, that they had planned to name J.D. And So three days before they were to leave, they were told that the adoption would be postponed For a couple weeks because of a strange new virus that had begun to spread around the world. And as you know, those couple weeks turned into months, which turned into a year, which ultimately turned into three years. And so not until July of 2023 were they able to pick up their son and welcome J.D. into their family. And so for three years, J.D. had to wait and wait and wait for him to see the face of the one who adopted him. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, with the return of Christ in view, though we may be waiting in the midst of pain and sorrow and turmoil and uncertainty, we eat and we drink knowing there will be a day when we see the face of the one who purchased us and adopted us with his own blood, we will see him face to face. And our waiting will cease and our faith will turn into sight. And so we eat of the supper looking forward. And yet Jesus adds another element to this meal. Not only do we look forward, but we also also look around. Verses 17-18 through of Luke 22 say, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. Now, Passover meals are not meals like we typically think of them. Right? There were certain stages of the meal that participants engaged in. And during the meal, there are what we would call four cups. And each cup represents a time that those at the meal would remember a specific aspect of the Exodus, a specific part of what God did when He freed them from Egyptian slavery. And what's interesting is that if you compare the Gospel writers' accounts of the Lord's Supper, of this Last Supper, you will notice that Luke is the only one who mentions two cups. And at first, that seems like a seemingly insignificant difference. The Passover meal included four cups, and Luke just happens to mention one more. What's the big deal? But Luke is not a clumsy writer. He is adding this detail here for a purpose. You see, the first cup that Luke mentions would have been the first cup used in the traditional meal. And this cup, when it was its turn as part of the meal process, Every person at the table would drink of their own cup, right? So no one drank from the same cup. Everyone had their own. But look at what Jesus says in verse 17. He says, take this and divide it among yourself. Jesus transforms this part of the meal into being a communal part of the meal. Jesus deviates from the traditional method and instead distributes a single cup among the disciples for them to drink from. By doing this, Jesus is bringing out and putting at the forefront that the meal Jesus is having and is inaugurating on this night is meant to be shared with other believers. And so rather than merely a time of individual self-reflection or merely a time of individual religious action, this meal was something to be celebrated and remembered with other believers. I mean, was this not the great sin of the Corinthian church, that groups of people were neglecting other members and taking the supper by themselves without remembering the unity of the church? The sin of the church in Corinth was that they were not remembering the unity of the body. They were forgetting one of the core aspects of the meal, which is to display our identity in and with the body of Christ. This is a communal moment. This is a communal moment. Meal, and Jesus begins to show that when he takes that one cup and distributes it among the disciples. And this is radically different compared to how many of us may view the Lord's Supper today. Sam Amadi paints a good picture of this mindset with an illustration. Amadi says, It's a typical Sunday at First Baptist Church for Dustin. Pastor John has just finished, finished his sermon and announced that after the closing hymn, he's going to baptize Thomas. A college student who, after wrestling with doubts over the resurrection for years, has finally believed the gospel. Thomas, Thomas, a college student, is being baptized. And so Dustin's wife ducks out during the first verse of the hymn to retrieve their children from the nursery. And when she arrives back at the pew with their gaggle of children, Dustin is noticeably flustered by their behavior. And so as the final verse ends, he just decides to sneak out with his family before the baptism. You know, his conscience is troubled at leaving early, but he decides to go ahead anyway. After all, Thomas's baptism doesn't really have anything to do with him, doesn't it? Isn't it just about Thomas's personal profession of faith? He can do that just as well without Dustin and his family being there. Amadi then says, Dustin's attitude towards Thomas's baptism represents the way many of us think about the ordinances. For many, baptism is essentially about My personal profession of faith. An expression of my obedience to Jesus. He goes on, regrettably, this individualism characterizes how many Christians even think about the more obviously communal ordinance, the Lord's Supper. We think the Lord's Supper is purely about my remembrance of Christ's sacrifice, my confession of sin, or my hope in the Lord's return. And so, with eyes tightly shut and hearts pretty well indifferent, to who may or may not be in the room, the Lord's Supper has become nothing more than an act of private devotion, just one we do in proximity to a lot of other Christians. Amani's point is that we have personalized the Lord's Supper to the point where we neglect the community of believers we take it with. This meal is not to be taken in the privacy of our own homes, it's not to be taken with just a select few, It is meant to be taken in the context around the community of God. And so Jesus transforms this part of the meal just for that one simple action of dividing the cup amongst the disciples. And so when we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, we are to look around and see the faces of those who Christ has purchased with His blood, with those who Christ has delivered. We are to look around and see Those who despite their sorrow and tragedy that they've experienced in their life are holding on to faith in Jesus Christ. We call it communion because in the act of eating and drinking around the Lord's table and with the Lord's people we are communing with both God and God's people. This meal is to be a time when our souls are nourished as we eat and drink in the presence of God and in the presence of other believers. Is it not a tragedy then that so many churches have neglected this meal? Is it not to the detriment of the health of a church when the supper is only observed once a quarter or even just once a year? Is it not to the detriment of our own individual souls when we rush through the supper as merely being tacked on at the end of a service, something that keeps us from cracker barrel or eating lunch? Dear friends, the time when the local church gathers around this table is one of the sweetest times of fellowship we can experience. It is a time when Christ's past work and His future work are combined together in our minds as we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Eternity seemingly touches time itself as we are transported to this very night in Luke 22, to the night of Jesus' betrayal. And as we look forward to His return, when every believer... Billions of whom we have never met from every tribe, nation, and language will gather and worship the conquering Lamb. And when we gather around the table and look around, we see our fellow believers as they truly are. More than teachers, more than businessmen, more than classmates. We see them as people who have been purchased and redeemed by the blood of the sacrificial Lamb. And so we look forward We look around and also we look back. So as we know, originally the Passover was the meal where the Israelites remembered the exodus from Egypt. For those unfamiliar, the exodus is when after 400 years of Egyptian slavery, God delivers His chosen people, the Israelites, from slavery and leads them to begin their journey to the Promised Land. And on the night that they were freed, all the firstborn of Egypt were killed while the Israelites were instructed by God to kill a lamb and put the blood around their doorpost. And so when the angel of death passed by, he would pass over the houses with the blood on the doorpost. That's why it's called Passover, to celebrate when the angel of death passed over the Israelite houses. And so in the eating of bread, the Israelites were to remember their hurried exit from Egypt. When they ate the lamb at Passover, they would remember the lamb that had died in the place of their firstborn sons. And this meal was something that transcended time and physical space. Every year when Passover came around, they were, in a sense, transported back to the Exodus. And we experience something similar in our own annual traditions, don't we? Andrew Wilson and Alistair Roberts say in their book on Exodus that ritual meals, celebrated the same way, with the same food, drink, and format every year, can connect the decades together in ways that nothing else Does. And that sounds kind of corny and sentimental, right? But think about our traditions. For example, many of you have Thanksgiving traditions or have had Thanksgiving traditions in the past. You have spent the fourth Thursday of November for as long as you can remember eating the same food at the same time, at the same place, with the same people, around the same decorations. And when you walk into that place to celebrate the meal, you can't help at some point to remember past thanksgivings. Because it all looks and tastes exactly the same. You find yourself seemingly being transported to a different time in your past. You can't help but remember. And so for the Israelites, in their observance of Passover, they were transported to the night of the Exodus, to the night of God's deliverance. And yet to quote Wilson and Roberts again, if the Passover is a song, then Jesus is about to change the melody. If the Passover is a song, then Jesus is about to change the melody. He takes these traditional elements, bread and wine, and reshapes how we are to view them. No longer will the disciples of Christ look back to the Old Testament Exodus when eating this meal, but rather now they would remember Him. They would remember Christ. He takes the bread in verse 19 and says, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Not of the Old Testament Exodus, but of the work of Christ on our behalf. Now, it should be noted that when Jesus says, This is my body, the disciples would have understood him to say that the bread represents Christ. It is not his actual physical body. He wants them to remember his body that would be scourged and beaten and whipped and crucified for unworthy sinners like Peter like John, like those around the table, and like you and me. And on the night he would be betrayed, Jesus instituted the very meal that we celebrate as a church to this day. The Lord's Supper is a time to look ahead, it's a time to look around, and it's a time to look back. It is a meal of remembrance, and how badly we need to remember how fickle our minds are, and how consumed we can be with the cares of this world. I mean, we are forgetful people. Scientists indicate that 50% of information that we learn is forgotten after one hour. 70% in 24 hours, and 90% of information is lost in a week. So teenagers, if you want a reason to get out of school, there you go. And this includes everything from what we learn in science class to the new technology we have to learn at work, to what we read in our Bibles. And yet some of our forgetfulness is intentional, is it not? Right. We mute what God has said about gossip when we go to the workplace. We forget what God has said about helping the needy and the outcast when we go to Walmart. Teenagers forget what God has said when it's time for the weekend to come around or when prom rolls around. We are forgetful people. How much of our struggles in the Christian life come from forgetting? We are so quick to forget the body bruised for us and the blood shed for us. We allow the cares of this world, even insignificant things like football games, to drown out the reminder of Christ's broken body. The pressures and cares of this world drown out the sound of the gospel in our minds. The stress of finances and raising kids pushes out remembrance of the gospel. The sadness of getting older and time passing us by can cause our ears to be deaf to God's promises. And so Christ, in His kindness, on the night that He is portrayed, institutes the Lord's Supper so that every time when we do this in remembrance of Him, we are reminded of what He has done for us. When we partake, just as the disciples were involved, we are involved in a visual sermon that testifies to the work Of Christ. We engage in this visual sermon that reminds us of Christ's death and reminds us of when he inaugurated a new covenant in his blood. Look down at verse 20. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This is Jesus, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And that verse right there is loaded with Old Testament imagery. You see, after the Israelites were freed from slavery, God inaugurates what we refer to as the Old Covenant. In Exodus 24, 5-8, through 8, which I think is going to be on the screen behind me. This is the Word of the Lord. It says, And he, Moses, sent young men to the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said... All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people, that's kind of gross, and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So at the inauguration of the old covenant, after the exodus, there is blood involved. The people of Israel are sprinkled with the blood of ox and of lambs, and so Fast forward to the time of Jeremiah, when the Israelites have broken this covenant hundreds, if not thousands of times. God promises a new covenant in Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 34. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Here's that language from Luke chapter 22 with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant But they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And so in verse 20, when Jesus says, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. He is declaring that the old covenant inaugurated with Moses in Exodus 24 is passing away. It is gone. And that the new covenant promised by Jeremiah is here. This covenant is not inaugurated with the blood of bulls or goats that cannot take away sins, but with the shed blood of the Son of God. Because ultimately, Jesus is not only faithful to the Passover, He not only transforms the Passover, but thirdly, Jesus fulfills the Passover. That's point number three. Jesus fulfills the Passover. So, Jesus has made it clear that what is about to happen is the inauguration of this new covenant. He tells us in verses 21-22 through that He would be handed over to the authorities through the betrayal of one of His disciples. And He shows us, He tells us that what is about to happen is something that was ordained from long ago. It was determined from eternity past, as Paul says in Ephesians, that God the Son would suffer for sins He did not commit. It was determined from before the foundations of the world that Christ would suffer and be handed into the hands of wicked man. And yet Jesus says, just because something has been ordained and predetermined does not mean that those who are about to betray Him and beat Him and mock Him are innocent. They are guilty of a great sin. Now, we could get bogged down here thinking about human responsibility versus divine sovereignty. But yet we must not lose sight of what Jesus is trying to communicate, that He is the long awaited and promised Messiah who is bringing about the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, and that the betrayal and the cross and the mocking are not hindrances to the prophecy's fulfillment, but rather they are the very means by which the prophecy will be fulfilled. The disciples were to see Judas betraying the Son of Man with a kiss and see that God's plan was unfolding just as it had been predetermined from eternity past. The disciples were not to fear that Jesus' mission would fail. And yet, as verse 23 shows, and following, they miss it. The disciples completely miss what Jesus was trying to tell them. They did not yet have the spiritual eyes to see. And so here's the question for us, though. Will we see? Roberts and Wilson point these things out in their book. Well, we recognize that a new and better Passover has arrived. You see, just like the Egyptians' firstborn sons died under the dark clouds of judgment, Jesus is the Son of God who dies under the dark clouds of judgment on a cross that we may be free. Jesus is the Son of God, or excuse me, the Lamb, who died in the place of Israelite firstborns. He's the lamb who has died in our place and whose blood proclaims freedom and not condemnation. Just like Pharaoh's army is tossed into the sea, Jesus is about to drown death itself through death. Jesus is the one whose blood inaugurates a new covenant and forms a new people, just like Exodus 24. Jesus is the bread of life who satisfies our souls. And Jesus is the wine which symbolizes new creation. At Passover meals, Israelites would eat bitter herbs. Jesus is the one who has eaten the bitterest of herbs, death itself, that we may have everlasting life. Jesus is the new and better Moses, who leads not a nation, but people from every nation out of slavery, and that that slavery that Jesus frees people from is not physical slavery, but slavery to sin, death, and hell itself. Jesus leads a new and better Passover. And so here this church, this Last Supper is not evoking the Passover in hindsight. Jesus wasn't just sitting around one day and said, you know it would be a good way to communicate uh, what I'm about to do? I'm going to use the Passover and just use that imagery. No, the Passover event in Egypt points ultimately to a greater deliverance. The Passover meal evokes the Last Supper in advance. You see, every time the Israelites were gathering to celebrate the Passover, They were anticipating the new and better Passover that Jesus had come to bring. And this greater deliverance would not happen by the parting of the Red Sea or the sending of plagues, but it would happen in the death of the eternal Son of God on a Roman cross. All of God's actions in the Old Testament have been pointing to and anticipating this very moment. When Jesus would lead a greater exodus that included a greater deliverance. And if you think we're off base by viewing Jesus' actions in this light, Luke tells us in Luke chapter 9, verse 31, Luke says that Elijah and Moses appeared to Jesus to speak of his departure. And the Greek word for departure there is the word exodus. We are to see Jesus' actions as him preparing for his exodus. The Last Supper was Jesus' way of pointing to the work of deliverance that he was about to perform. And the Lord's Supper is how we celebrate pointing back to that work, pointing ahead to his future work, and it points around to those who have been saved by his work.